Thank you. It's a joy to be with Fitzroy. That's your name, I guess. And these beautiful people in this beautiful space in pews with doors on them. <laughs> I've been going to church all of my life. I, this is the first time to sit in pews with doors on them. Perry asked me, what are the doors for? I said, I don't know. Keep the riffraff out or something. I don't know. Well, toward the end of the first century, the Apostle Peter in Rome writes a letter to Christians living in the Asian provinces of the Roman Empire, in the eastern provinces. And interestingly, Peter calls these new believers in Jesus as Lord as exiles or foreigners or as resident aliens. You could translate that various ways. And he calls these new believers exiles not because they were actually foreigners. They were native to those provinces, but because now, having been baptized into Christ, they now confessed that Jesus is Lord, and by implication, Caesar is not. And they were ill at ease within the empire in which they had lived all of their lives, because now, in following Jesus Christ, they were embracing a whole new set of values. Instead of the typical values of empire, of power and greed and domination, they were being formed by values that come from Christ, from the Beatitudes, from the Sermon on the Mount. And my text today comes from this letter that the Apostle writes to these exiles. Exiles on Main Street, you might think of them as. And my text today is a, well, it's a poetic Peter, we don't often think of him as a poet, but it's a poetic contemplation from this great saint on the cross of Christ. And I think it's one of the most sublime passages in all of the New Testament. It's a meditation, really, on the meaning of the cross. And quite simply, Peter sees the cross as the wound that heals the world. Listen to his words. When he was abused... He did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for what is right by his wounds. You have been healed. The cross is where God acts decisively to heal our wounded world. You know, the world doesn't have to be as it is. We grow accustomed to it. We think it's just normal. But it doesn't have to be this way. This is one of the great contributions of the Hebrew prophets. They were, as far as we know, among the first to attempt to reimagine the world. They, like we, had received a world that was addicted to violence and retribution and pride and greed. And yet these prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and others, they began to imagine what if 
What if swords could be turned to plowshares? What if spears might become pruning hooks? What if tanks turned into tractors? What if, what if missile silos became grain silos? What if the lion would lay down with the lamb? That is, what if, what if the powerful would no longer view the vulnerable as prey? But what if the most vulnerable could live in security among those that are powerful and would not be exploited by them? What if? I mean, they're the dreams of the prophets. What if there would be a new kind of temple? A temple from which a trickle of water would begin to flow from the people of God. And it would flow out into the waste places and trees would spring up and deserts would flourish and a dead sea would be healed. What if? We live in a wounded world, but those who gave us our scriptures had the capacity to imagine something other. Well, the cross is where God, in fact, acts decisively to heal our wounded world. From the days of Cain and all of the kings that followed... Because that's how the Bible tells the story, you know. There was a man named Adam, a woman named Eve. They had two sons, Cain and Abel. They were in competition and rivalry. Cain became possessed of something. He looked at his brother, didn't recognize him as brother, called him other and enemy, lied to God and himself about it, killed his brother, moved east of Eden, and founded the first city. And we've pretty much followed the pattern. And what that pattern leads to is what the writer of Revelation would describe as, well, we call it the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There's a red horse. Uh, there's a white horse and then a red horse and then a, and then a black horse and then a pale horse. And they follow one another. There's the, there's the white horse of conquest. You know, I've traveled the world and everywhere I go, in every capital city, there's always some dude on a horse. You know, there's always just some dude on a horse and he's got a sword and he looks very important. And I began to notice after, it's all the same dude. Now, if it's your dude, you know, you, you know who he is and you have certain patriotic feelings about it. But for me, it's just like, I don't even know who the dude is, but it's the same dude all over the world on a horse. So you have the white horse goes forth to conquer. But the funny thing is, not everybody enjoys being conquered. And sometimes they resent that and they fight back. And then you get the red horse of war. And of course, that just is the opposite of human flourishing. And so you end up with the black horse of famine and poverty and lack and not near enough. And then you get the pale horse of death. I don't want a cycle of recycled revenge. I don't want to follow death and all of his friends. I don't want a battle from beginning to end. White horse, red horse. Black horse, pale horse, conquest, war, poverty, death, on repeat. We call it world history. So at the fullness of time, at the culmination of the ages, when God is about to act decisively, Jesus comes to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The foal of a donkey. A little beast of burden. Anything but a horse. That's the point. That Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, is not some dude on a horse. He eschews the war horse to ride the little 
donkey into Jerusalem. On Good Friday, Jesus put an end to the vicious cycle that has kept the world on repeat. White horse, red horse, black horse, pale horse. This battle from beginning to end, this cycle of recycled revenge, this following death and all of its friends. Peter puts it this way, when he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Abuse and suffering replicates itself like a virus. You know this. Abused people are most likely to become abusive. Hurt people hurt people. It's the cycle. It's a virus. People are abused and then they find that they are compelled to retaliate. And abusive people justify their actions by citing the abuse they have suffered. This is the logic of terrorism. And we're haunted in this time by the specter of terrorism. And we want to think of those that commit monstrous deeds as monsters themselves. But I promise you, if you sat down with them, there would be a logic to it. It would be a demonic logic. It would not be the logic of love. It would not be the logic of the logos of God who is Christ. But they would have a logic. They would say we are simply paying back those that have abused us and our people. It's the cycle of recycled revenge. And we call it world history and we begin to grow numb to it. And we think it's the only way that it can be. But it does not have to be so. In the body of Jesus, the abuse of virus, the, 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 the virus as, an, as abuse or the abuse of virus did not replicate itself. When Christ was abused, abuse simply dies in Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you have been healed. The world wounded by the sin of Adam and Eve and Cain and all the kings that followed send its sins into the body of Jesus. So truly he bore our sins. I want you to sit with that a moment. What happened on Good Friday? The world of religion, the world of government, the world of economics, represented by the high priest Caiaphas, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, the king Herod, send the sins of the world with violence Into the body of Jesus. Nails in his hands and in his feet. Crown of thorns upon his brow. Spear in his side. Nailed to a tree. The world as it has been arranged. Send its sins into the body of Jesus. But there. Sin found its grave. Because when he was abused he did not abuse. 
When he suffered, he did not say, I will pay you back. The dying words of Christ are not, Father, revenge me. Father, avenge my blood. His dying words are, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. The world as it is arranged, sinned, it sins with great violence into the body of Jesus. And Jesus does not threaten. He does not cry out for vengeance. He prays for forgiveness and then says, Father, into your hands. And Jesus goes down into death. He took the sin of the world that was sinned into his body with great violence all the way down into death. And Jesus left it. And having been raised by the Father on the third day, he comes back into this world speaking the first word of the new world, peace be with you. Jesus is not raised by the Father so that he can seek revenge against Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod. Rather, he comes back speaking the word of peace, offering the world a new arrangement. But in his resurrection, Jesus still wore his wounds because by his wounds you have been healed. The sin of the world, in which we are all implicated in one way or another, left its mark on Jesus. The wounds in Jesus' hands and feet and side are the entry wounds of sin into the body of Jesus. But once sin entered into the body of Christ, sin itself died. Yes, those wounds still visible in resurrection are the entry wounds by which sin was inflicted into Christ. But sin, having entered into the body of Christ, found its grave. Sin itself died. And Jesus took the venom of sin and transformed it into the remedy of forgiveness. By his wounds you have been healed. That's how we talk about salvation when we see sin primarily as a disease. Which is probably the best way to talk about it. But if we want to talk about sin in a legal sense, in a judiciary sense, we can say it like this. When grace is pierced, it bleeds pardon. The book of Hebrews says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know, this is at the crucial moment in the foundation of human civilization. Cain, the farmer, the harnesser of agriculture is now in competition with his brother whom he regards as other and enemy. And he kills his brother Abel and moves east of Eden and founds the first city. And we're told that when Cain slew his brother Abel, that Abel's blood cried out from the ground. No doubt crying out for justice. Perhaps for vengeance. But in coming to Jesus Christ, we've come to the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word. And what is that word? That word is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And when Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How does the father respond? He says, of course, my son. Yes, this is what we do. Truly on the cross, Jesus bled pardon for the world. A river of pardon and not revenge. There are many ways of talking about the cross. But I don't know how to say it any better than this. The cross is the wound that heals the world. Sin wounds us all. Both the sinner and the sinned against. I mean, ultimately, do you think that the terrorist is any less wounded by the wounds he inflicts? Every wound we inflict upon another, we also inflict upon our own soul. That's how it works. But by the wounds of Christ, we are healed. So bring your wounds to Jesus. Whether they are the wounds from your own sin or someone else's sin, and by the way, we all have both. Bring your wounds to the wounds of Christ. Lay your wounds upon the wounds of Christ because here is a mystery. When we bring our wounds to the wounds of Christ, it does not multiply woundedness, but tends toward healing. When Jesus was crucified, he was wounded in his hands and in his feet. And as the body of Jesus hung upon the cross, he was wounded in his side. A wound that reached all the way to the heart. John goes to great detail to describe this. He sees the Roman spear enter the side of Jesus, pierce his heart, and there came a stream of blood and water. The pierced side of Jesus is the door to the heart of God. And what is in the heart of God? Well, once we come to the wounded side of Christ, we know there's no malice, no rage, no wrath, no vengeance in the heart of God. The heart of God is nothing but a boundless ocean of healing love. There are no monsters lurking in the heart of God. So gaze deep into the wounds of Christ and you will find nothing but the love of God. In the wounded side of Christ, the doorway to the heart of God is open. Gaze into the heart of God. The cross is not where God employed hideous violence to satisfy His wrath. The cross is not where Jesus saves us from God, but where Jesus reveals God as Savior. The cross is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures As he forgives. The cross is where we look into the heart of God. And discover that there is nothing there but love for us all. There are no monsters lurking in the heart of God. Only love and forgiveness, mercy and compassion. The side of Jesus was not pierced to change the heart of God. The side of Jesus was pierced to reveal the heart of God. Jesus did not come to change God's mind about us. Jesus came to change our mind about God and about our brothers and sisters. At the cross, the heart of God was laid bare by a Roman spear. And this is the wound that heals the world. Amen. Shall we pray?
O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your spirit upon all flesh. And hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.